You're listening to a Red Bull podcast. I'm Al Grigg, and this is Red Bull's If These Walls Could Talk, a podcast about our favourite parties and the people and places that made them. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record and honour their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. This season, we're hearing the stories of some of Australia's best music festivals from the people who made them. And we're starting with the festival that completely transformed Australia's music industry, The Big Day Out. Sometimes it was revoltingly hot. Uh, there are other times where there were storms, you know, bearing down on us. And just the, the general feeling in the air, the anticipation of a storm about to break over the main stage and all that. But on the most part, there was a thrill in the air, a thrill, an anticipation and thrill. This is Sahara Herald. She's describing that electric feeling of working at the big day out. Today, Sahara is the tour director at Frontier Touring, one of the largest concert promoters in the country. But for almost 20 years, Sahara was the national event coordinator for the Big Day Out. She played a huge role in putting on one of Australia's most loved and iconic music festivals. That was my daily life for 18 years, pretty much, that uh, I just lived and breathed the Big Day Out. I was, you know, tremendously proud of it, but it was hard work. When the Big Day Out started in 1992, annual festivals like Lollapalooza in the US had just started gaining serious momentum. And a couple of music promoters, Ken West and Vivian Lees from Sydney and Melbourne, thought maybe they could do something similar in Australia. Today, when many of us think of the big day out, we picture thousands of people. We feel that intense summer heat and we hear music from the biggest bands in the world. And from the very beginning, the festival was legendary. The first ever big day out was held in Sydney. Nearly 10,000 people bought tickets. They even got a call from the Prime Minister's office asking if Mrs Keating could take the kids to the show. And by sheer fluke, they locked in Nirvana, the biggest band in the world. With 21 bands performing across three stages, that first year was not only groundbreaking, but marked the emergence of a cultural icon. The festival ran for 20 years, finishing up in 2014. And at one point, the Big Day Out was the biggest touring festival in the world. It was a show that was essentially produced by people who loved music. It's basically a bunch of mates. (laughs) That's how it started out. And mates of mates that put this together and it grew organically. It didn't start as a a six-city touring event. It started as a show in Sydney for 10,000 people and grew to be a behemoth. I think the thing for me that always really stood out was this sense of anticipation. People had been looking forward to this show for months. They had bought their ticket on the first day they'd gone on sale and it gave them something to look forward to with a real level of hope and anticipation. And you could feel that on the day. It is really good to hear you talk about that excitement because I feel like I remember that so fondly, not only from, you know, maybe getting a big day out ticket for like Christmas or something like that from, you know, my grandma or somebody, but also the the anticipation on the day, like when you felt like you were this outsider kid, maybe in your suburb, you know, in Sydney somewhere. And then on the day of the big day out, it felt like a coming together of all these outsiders or different subcultures. And it was so exciting to kind of all come together in this place. It was a a gathering of the tribes, really, wasn't it, you know? Yeah. But overall, there were people that were 
for a long time that we're very like-minded, that we're gathering together, that intrinsically, certainly for those first number of years, the people at the show underneath it all were music fans. Within a couple of years, the Big Day Out had expanded from its Sydney home to five capital cities across the country. Like the Gold Coast, they were there to party, you know, and we would do really big bar takes on the Gold Coast. And there was kind of a a, a different sense of kind of jubilance in the air. Like, you know, they were up for anything on the Gold Coast. And I think a lot of that was because they felt like they were on holidays. You know, they'd travelled, they'd caught a plane, they'd driven, they were staying in a calm and they were out to have a good time. I always thought the Melbourne audience really took a lot more interest in some of the smaller acts on the other stages. Like, they were kind of really thoughtful about their music consumption as well. By the time we'd get to Perth (laughs) and it would be the last show and it would all start getting a bit loose, Perth can always be a little bit of a cowboy town in a lot of regards. And I think, you know, they were just always so thrilled that they had on their doorstep a vast abundance of really high-caliber artists that a lot of times wouldn't normally if they were touring themselves, wouldn't make it to Perth. And, you know, we still see that now on the touring circuit, that a lot of tours don't go to Perth because, you know, it's so isolated, it's expensive to do. And, of course, Sydney. (laughs) Sydney, um, I always felt a little bit on knife's edge. She just never knew which way the audience was going to go. They could be full of joy, but they could also get pretty cranky too. In a matter of years, the Big Day Out really had become a behemoth festival. And as national event coordinator, Sahara was behind the scenes, pulling it all together. This festival would go on to influence Australia's music and festival scene for decades. But while we may see Sahara as a music festival giant today, back in the 90s, she was booking music venues and studying journalism. I had wanted to be uh, a journalist and I kind of segued into music. But what I did find was that I was just really good at organising shit particularly around the logistics of just making stuff happen. I became the booker at a couple of different venues, which fielded me a great, you know, I was just exposed to great music. I got to book great music. I got to introduce music to audiences and to Brisbane. And for me, more importantly, I met people that became very significant in my life. And Ken was one of those. Ken West and Kate Stewart were the core of the small Sydney-based Big Day Out team for a couple of years before Sahara moved there in 1994. They asked her to join them initially on a part-time basis. At that stage, the Big Day Out was quite small. It was getting bigger, but it wasn't at the size then by any stretch that it ended up in. So for most of the year, Ken, Kate and I were in this little uh, terrace house in Crown Street and then we would relocate to Sydney Showground towards the end of the year and spend the summer working out of some offices there. I live in a terrace house in inner Sydney and it's amazing to imagine a festival coming alive in a little house around the corner from here. But I also love thinking about what the music scene was like back then and that this massive event that totally changed how we could see live music in Australia was dreamt up within four small walls. Big Day Out was pretty much the first time in Australia that for the cost of just one ticket, people who loved music could see some of the biggest artists from around the world. Like Björk, Iggy Pop, Rage Against the Machine, Beastie Boys, but all playing alongside so many local or more obscure artists that they might have never heard otherwise. 
credit to Ken West in particular because he saw it really as our duty, not just to deliver what people wanted, you know, what was at the top of the charts or what was getting the most spins on Triple J or whatever it might be. And he really put a lot of time and thought into ensuring our lineup was quite diverse and that it was challenging too, that we were putting acts on that (laughs) did not fit the box. Some of them had really jagged edges, but we made it a real mission to expose people to what we thought they needed to hear rather than what they thought they wanted. Did that work all the time? No, not necessarily, but I think a, a vast majority of the time it did. And it really exposed audiences to new experiences and it gave those artists the opportunity to play to you know, much bigger audiences than they normally would as well. And I feel like as a for me as a teenager, it was really the big day out and home bake in Sydney anyway. That was the entire festival season. It was those two events. Well, can you imagine back in the day, those two events were being produced out of the same building in Surrey Hills. Hey, <laughs> no way. <laughs> it was a hive of activity. Yeah. It was uh, fondly called the House of Hoax. <laughs> it was a, a wonderful converted uh, warehouse and um, some regard that building is very culturally significant. That's where the Sydney Big Day Out headquarters were. Homebake was there. Our merch company, Love Police as well. Should definitely be on the Heritage Register, that building. Yeah, there was a lot of fun had in that building too. um, (laughs) (laughs) If these walls could talk. (laughs) Exactly. After five years of a good run, in 1997, Ken West and Vivian Lees announced the Big Day Out would have a year-long hiatus. The news shook music fans around the country. We'd had a year off. Uh, you know, would they still come? Well, they did, and it got really big. And from there, it just kept getting bigger, and we kept attracting larger artists. And I guess the thing that became noticeable is that agents, uh, managers, and artists themselves, as well as record labels, started to plan their cycles around the big day out. When that starts happening, it really becomes a game changer in the music scene. And it put the Australian music and festival scene on the global map. Well, it sure did. I mean, what it did was it established a really strong touring base to put Australia in the cycle of artists, that it was worthwhile them coming all this distance. You played it the big day out, pretty much guaranteed that you would get significant album sales from that as well. So, you know, it was a very lucrative play for a lot of international artists and it changed the way that agents and managers and artists thought about this territory as well. And I guess, like you said, it did really just grew and grew in size and anticipation. People were so desperate to to go to the festival and to get in. Did people really try to jump the fence to get into the festival? And were there any other ways people used to try to sneak in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's use the term fence jumping as the loose term. Being the first music festival of its kind in Australia, there was a lot that the Big Day Out team were learning on the go. And dealing with fence jumpers was a massive one. Sahara says by the time social media became a thing, it wasn't just a couple of people trying to get into the festival here and there. People suddenly had the ability to mobilise. This became a game that a group were playing you know, that they would start to organise, etc., and there'd be attacks on fence lines. 
And some of those actually became quite dangerous, where security were injured, etc. But they were using military tactics, like they were creating diversions that security would run over to, which then would leave a weak point at the fence somewhere else. There was one fellow that came up through the sewage. Oh, <laughs> gross. Who had like a laminated <laughs> blue plan of the pipe system. You know? Whoa. He came up out of the manhole, basically directly in front of the backstage, like the security and police centre oh. backstage. <laughs> like, hey! Oh. Oh. <laughs> and we had for quite some time two women that turned up at our guest gate in Sydney, um, basically demanding that they were on the guest list. We didn't have guest lists. And then they then tried to say that they were, I don't know, some type of media, they were there to do some interview and not, not, you know, they kept getting knocked back. It went on for hours. Anyway, I went up there myself and basically told them to rack off. But that stuff, it's just time wasting when you're trying to produce a show. Anyway, I didn't think much more of it. And then I heard a call over the radio. <laughs> These two women, this is quite ingenious, really, but they hid in some wheelie bins oh and actually gosh. got into the backstage area, you know, covered in banana peel and whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's it's almost flattering the, you know, extents people will go to when you're throwing an event that good. People are, like, printing out the sewer plans just to get in. But, you know, Big Day Out did host a long list of famous musicians. Can you tell me about some of your all-time favourite acts to play and some of the more memorable moments you had with a few of them? I've always had a deep love and fascination of Patti Smith and that was really a highlight for me, getting her and her band on the Big Day Out. So it was when she had first started playing gigs again. She had not been playing for quite some time. I'd spent some wonderful time with PJ Harvey. She did the show a couple of times. and That was quite a coup to get her on the show. She'd been really hesitant and she had been booked a couple of times and cancelled a couple of times to the point where we didn't think it was going to happen. And she's just a beautiful human and tremendous artist. And she gave me a lot of personal support during what was a really tough time on one particular year that she was on. And I had a beautiful moment with the Flaming Lips, which uh, also was well documented by uh, the photographer Sophie Howe. But it was a, a rare moment where I defrocked and took all you know my various radios and trappings off, etc., and got into an animal costume and, and danced on stage with them for an hour. And it was probably one of the most freeing, liberating moments of being at the show where I was just a <laughs> uh, just a girl in a blue bear suit, you know, dancing with the flaming lips and momentarily having no responsibility. And it's so cool that you mentioned PJ Harvey playing because I remember seeing her for the first time on the main stage at the Big Day Out and she was playing, I can't remember, it's um, Rid of Me and the lick my legs, I'm on fire. And it was blew my mind. She was just up there with a huge red guitar in like a tiny black dress. She was just and I think everyone around me was, as well. Yeah. Yeah. It just blew people's yeah. minds. She was absolutely in her element. It was magnificent to see. You've often spoken about your dedication to making sure female artists are given space on festival lineups. Can you tell me a bit why that's so important to you? Ah, uh, well, why isn't it important? Really? That's what the question should be. Why isn't it a priority? Why do we have to fight for that? Ken in particular was always very supportive around that and had a lot of perspective. And it was sometimes very hard to 
find uh, a balance in regard to having female artists and content and performers, etc. They weren't necessarily on offer from agents. Sometimes we had to hunt them out and you might have one or two significant ones, whether that's your Patti Smith or PJ Harvey or whoever that might be. But, you know, to really get that layered through a show was we had to actively do it. And that was something I was very passionate about. And I've got to say, too, that was very much reflected in the show behind the scenes as well. While you had Ken and Vivian who owned the show, if you looked at the people around them that were running it, there were a lot of women, you know, not just myself, that were integral in making that show happen. Uh, Someone asked me the other day about quotas. I'm a a great believer in them, whether that's in the workforce or on, on stages, et cetera. Unless you actually make those changes happen, they don't necessarily happen organically, particularly when the seeds of power that are making the decisions, uh, whether that's within booking agents or record labels or radio stations who are choosing who's being played, etc., when they're predominantly all straight white men making those decisions, it's affecting what's being played, what's being heard, who's getting opportunities. Uh, unless you make some changes at the grassroots level, it doesn't necessarily happen organically. The Big Day Out was huge in bringing new and sidelined artists in front of Australian audiences. But it was more than music. It was an experience. It was an adventure. It was a place of discovery. It was a place where memories were made. Unlike the sprawling music festivals that were happening in green fields in the countryside overseas, the Big Day Out team wanted this to be a real city experience. At the time, Ken West, one of the founders of The Big Day Out, said he wanted to emulate controlled chaos and urban mayhem. Sahara's role was to bring in the control to the chaos and to make sure no one in the crowd knew just how insane it was to run a festival of this magnitude. You know, it's easy to get sidelined by the the glory of it, that, you know, it's big and blustery on the day and isn't it magnificent, but a lot of it was just really hard grind. And there was a lot of risk factor just in travelling a festival of that type across multiple dates across a country as vast as Australia that is prone to (laughs) unpredictable weather, whether that's, you know, uh, heat waves, fire, cyclones, floods, etc. Trucks breaking down, planes being late, artists getting sick, whatever it might be. Were there any moments that come to mind when you thought, we are not going to pull off this festival? Look, there. I mean, there were certainly moments for me on a personal level but also professional level that were pretty challenging. Um, you know, my, my eldest daughter uh, died in September of 2000 and, you know, I went back to work the week after her funeral because uh, I didn't really know, I didn't know what else to do with myself. And, um, you know, and Big Day Out was my life. It was the place I felt safe. Um, and I kind of, you know, threw myself into work as a distraction. And then, you know, come that January, we, we had a death at the show. Um, Jessica Mikulik was, uh, there was a crowd collapse and she was, she was crushed. Um, and she was, you know, she had just turned 16. And making a conscious decision then about in that, you know, in those days that followed, that was at the Sydney show, do we continue the tour? 
it's very hard to say, oh, this is what I would do or this is how it's done when you're actually navigating such new territory and there's no kind of <sighs> signposts along the way. You know, you're going on instinct, etc. So, you know, we continued the show and I still believe that was the right thing to do. Everyone on the tour felt the tragedy and the artists pulled together, the audiences showed up and the tour was able to continue. We had a an amazing bunch of artists on the road with us that year, uh, you know, at the drive-in, PJ Harvey, uh, Ramstein, Powderfinger, etc. that all, you know, were really stepped up and helped deliver incredible show and were very supportive of us as well, given the, the circumstances, while still obviously being respectful of what had happened, you know, not to diminish it in any way. And then we had to make a decision, really, about whether we would do the tour again the next year. And we it was the first time that we were really facing, obviously, a heartbreaking and tragic outcome to what should have been a joyous day. But also on a media level, you know, the big day out had been the golden child that could do no wrong. And we'd also been a little bit still on the periphery. Once that happened, we we were front page news every year and we took it as an opportunity to do better, to reevaluate how we did the show, what our aims and goals were, and also to know that we had um, a responsibility still, that this was something that people loved. Would we let it end the show? We decided no, but, you know, we, we'd learnt from it, we made changes, we engaged with the audience um, with emergency services, et cetera, with planning just in a, a different way and set new um, standards on, you know, safety, security, protocols, et cetera, across the world. Despite a pretty difficult time, the next year, the big day out sold out. It wasn't a given that it would do well. So it was, you know, we had a sense of relief when it sold out immediately. But for me on a personal level, like I had a... Um, a little tradition that had started where, uh, you know, I would go up and open the gates in Sydney to pick someone to be the first person through, um, just at the Sydney show. And, you know, each year I'd promise myself I wasn't going to cry, you know, (laughs) but it would be just be this incredible moment where I'd actually feel really connected to that joy and anticipation that we were talking about earlier. And it would remind me why I was there. Because it's really easy to get stuck in, uh, you know, flight schedules and marketing plans and spreadsheets and none of which is very, you know, sexy. Um, But to actually be at that coalface then and be reminded that at the end of the day, everyone here is a music fan. And that's why we had started this show. I was always prone to tears, but, you know, I had a little quiet cry. It was like, you know, that moment of going, you know, they still love us. We're still doing something that's important. We're just doing it better. After changes to the Big Day Out team in 2014, it was announced that next year's show would be cancelled. The Big Day Out had a pretty rocky finish, and despite some talk of the organisers picking it up in the future, the festival never happened again. Today, Sahara is the tour director at Frontier Touring. With decades of experience under her belt, I asked what she thought brought about the decision to end the big day out. Well, <laughs> I, I, I had left by the time that it ended and, you know, I think it was a, 
a series of unfortunate uh, events. And I think maybe it had just got too big in some ways, you know, like um, keeping a beast like that alive is, <laughs> it's pretty hard to sustain. And, you know, it was carrying a lot of, um, uh, you know, risk and pressure and obligation and responsibility along with it. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily about the music anymore, whether it was the pressure of, you know, the commercial aspects of it and sponsorship and stuff, which, is you know, um, while a necessity of sorts, you know, it's it's not fun. And I think maybe it was Big Day Out had a special time in the sun and that time just ended, really, that it, it came to its its natural close. Um, and, you know, I tell you what, Al, when that show was was good, it was glorious and it was a glorious thing to be a part of. And uh, I'll always treasure that. You know, the, the good years there were just really magnificent when I felt I was a part of something really important and that, you know, brought a lot of joy to people, but it brought joy to me too. When the big day out ended, it left a legacy. We saw the evolution of more boutique festivals, which started off small, a little bit more manageable, and as a result, created new worlds and more out there festival experiences. In the next episode of If These Walls Could Talk, we're speaking to Claire Downs, the director of Secret Garden, a festival built in a hidden forest just an hour from Sydney's CBD. I'm Al Grigg. This is If These Walls Could Talk, a Red Bull podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more stories from the world of Red Bull, head to redbull.com slash if these walls could talk.